Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Thank you for listening. I'm really grateful for you being here. It's all a bit hectic at the moment with no childcare in the world gone mad and I've got some family illness as well. So it's all incredibly intense at the moment. So I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. And look, I mean... At last, we've finally got something to look forward to. June 21st. Never have I wanted to go. It's going to be... Never have I wanted to go out to a club so much. Um, normally, like most of us, the idea of going to a club is something that gets suggested at about 7 o'clock in the evening and then thankfully long forgotten by the end of the night. But um, I'm very much looking forward to going out on summer solstice. I mean, maybe we should all agree to rendezvous down at Stonehenge, see the uh, the end of lockdown in together. Anyway, so uh, some degree of optimism because it means that right now a lot of businesses around the country are going to be starting to think, right, what can we do to get ourselves back on an even keel? You know, whether the the vision of work that we're imagining is this hybrid model that everyone's talking about, or maybe we're just really longing to get the team back together full time in the office. Then for the first time, I think we've got a sense that we can start planning it and we can start building that. So really exciting to, to be laying that out together. And I think, you know, in the context of that, it's going to be a really good episode for you today. I personally find that there's no one more provocative and there's no one who asks more of the questions that just just generally don't get asked uh, than Cal Newport. So uh, it's brilliant to have him along. I'll just give, before I go to that introduction, I'll give just a quick shout out to the newsletter. On the newsletter last week, I went through uh, that Twitter thread that's been going round by Chris Hurd. So you might have seen this Twitter thread. Uh, Chris has obviously been making a, a good lucrative show of this. It, Chris sells remote working solutions into companies. And about every week or so, he's tweeting out that he's spoken to all companies. And one of the things he asserts in his Twitter threads, they evolve over time, is that the office headquarters is dead. And so last week, I just set about trying to see whether I could find any proof for that. 
I couldn't find proof for it, but I shared all of the evidence that I've been seeing about how the office is going to evolve. And it doesn't all completely contradict what Chris is saying, but it tries to give a bit of substance. So if you are interested in getting the newsletter, go to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and you'll you'll see it at the top. You can you can follow it there. And uh, the newsletter has been growing fantastically. Always, if you want to get a hold of me, you can always reply to that and it lands immediately in my inbox. So today's episode is with Cal Newport and I've, I've chatted to Cal uh, two times before. So you might not know Cal Newport. He's a professor at Georgetown University in Washington. He's a computer scientist and by trade. and But he, he often delves into writing books that are really stimulating challenges to the norms that we live with. So he wrote a book called Digital Minimalism a couple of years ago that really encouraged you to renegotiate your relationship with social media, not necessarily to cut yourself off from it, but know specifically why you're using it. Because otherwise, it's like this chewing gum for your brain that isn't actually producing the happiness that you think it is. So like building a far more intentional relationship with social media. He also wrote a book that I think is a modern classic called Deep Work, all about the fact that if we want to get anything done, as unfortunate as it might be, we need to concentrate. We can't achieve anything of any value by these sort of little frivolous ping pong uh, interactions between ourselves. And it's this new book that he's uh, here talking about today that draws most on those deep work things. So he's written a new book called A World Without Email. And it's a book effectively asking us to reconsider what is the founding principle of modern work email. He actually goes on to explain that, you know, if he was going to more accurately title this book, it would be A World Without Email and Zoom and Teams, and Slack. So uh, all of these things. And you might say, well, how would that look? And this is why Cal's such a brilliant provocateur, um, is that, you know, he asked in a previous episode, and I've linked all the episodes with Cal at the, the end of the page. He asked in a previous episode, what would it look like if you hired someone in your team and you didn't give them an individual email account, but you gave them a team email account? So, you know, all of that communication needs to get done now becomes group communication. What would that look like? Really interesting provocation because his point was then you remove this admin job that they're all doing. And what would you what would you do to try and communicate with them or to get them to do their job? And that's sort of where this discussion goes today. So I'm I'm not going to sort of preempt it. But what Cal effectively talks about is that, you know, there are different tools that we might actually start thinking more honestly about the the way that we are working. So in the book, he talks about Trello, which is effectively sort of a project management tool. He talks about a product called Flow on the podcast today. So he's not remotely aversive to using technology, but he believes that we should use it far more adapted to the role. Um, Good discussion. Along the way, I refer to Legos which is just an illustration of what a easily malleable, malleable person I am. I, my partner's American, and you should hear the, me referring to the store and all manner of things. I'm, I'm embarrassed with myself. But Legos is what American people use to describe multiple pieces of Lego. British people would never say that. I recognise that it's lunacy. But uh, when you hear me refer to Legos, you can wince. 
I mean, sometimes when I'm doing these discussions, I want, I, I almost, I've obviously got like this adaptive mindset. I almost go into um, talking about like process, you know, because Americans say process. Um, I know, I guarantee if I spent six months living in America, I'd be like Steve McLaren when he had that Dutch accent. Utterly embarrassed with myself. Anyway, here he is. Brilliant. No one is more provocative. No one is more challenging. And I think no one will make you ask more questions of yourself. Here's my discussion with Cal Newport. Cal, thank you so much for joining me. Um, because you're so incredibly active and prolific, you, you won't know, but I chatted to you a couple of years ago, and I think it was around the time that digital minimalism was coming out. And I said, what's next? And you said, you offered this tantalizing prospect of a, a book called A World Without Email. And I thought, okay, that sounds intriguing. And then when your publisher sent a copy along to me, I thought, surely not this book, not now. How can anyone in this year that we've just gone through, how can anyone think that we could survive without email and I was so delighted when I read it because it so resolutely dismissed any of those concerns as we entered pandemic did you did you worry that some of these these thoughts that had been floating in your head might be somehow subverted or, or uh, disproven were you worried about that uh, well, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's good to be back <laughs> chatting with you again. No, I mean, what I, my reaction to pandemic is that, oh, this is going to make the problems I talk about even worse. So it's going to take the, the pain points that I'm trying to help relieve in the way we work. And it's going to you know, turn those screws and make them worse. So I was thinking, you know, you were saying, how could anyone go through this pandemic year of remote work and, and think I don't want email. I'm like, how can anyone get through this year and think I want to keep using email you know, the way we have been? Uh, so I, I think the issues have only become more pronounced. And it seems at the heart of everything that you're saying, um, so correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but you, you seem at the heart of what you're saying to say that somehow we're in this collective illusion where what we believe our job is is often quite different from what our job is. We, we're almost in this performative version of our jobs and we've lost sight of the products that we're meant to be creating. Have I got that right? Is that what one of your takes? Well, I, I think that's a fair way of putting it. I mean, the, the background I would give is, you know, we had this new technology, but email that spread throughout the office offices of the world roughly in the early half of the 1990s. And it had a very clear promise, which was there's specific communication that you already do. This is going to make it better. So fax machines are a pain. This is better. Voicemail is a pain. This is better. Inner office memos is a pain. This is better. And that was true. So that's why it spread. This was stuff we we're already doing. Email made it better. Once it was in place, however it brought with it as this sort of accidental secondary infection, this new way of collaborating. We say, oh, now that we have low friction digital communication, in, in addition to using it to throw out our fax machine and to get rid of our voicemail codes, we can now actually collaborate primarily with back and forth messaging. So like you would do in person, if you're having a conversation, we can have ad hoc unstructured messaging back and forth to figure things out. The problem is this doesn't scale very well. So when we took all the different things we're working on and said, we'll just work all these things out on the fly over email and later Slack just sort of made the, you know, was pushing the same type of working. We figure everything out with these back and forth conversations. It took all of our time eventually 
just to keep tending these channels, to keep all these back and forth asynchronous communications going. So, so we ended up in this place where this mode of working that I call the hyperactive hive mind took all the time. And then we got to this absurd place. It's like out of a Camus play or something where all we do during our working hours now is send messages back and forth about our work and have to sneak in the actual work in the morning or sneak in the actual work, you know, at night after our kids go to bed. And we just look around. And we all are, we all are just looking at each other and saying, this is normal, right? This is good. This is what we should be doing. We should be on, we should be on email all day. That's what I think happened is that email had a clear value proposition and then it had this accidentary secondary effect of, oh, can't we just figure everything out on the fly? It didn't scale. And it took over everything. Because to some extent, the hyperactive hive mind, people's experience of it right now, especially in this pandemic, might be not only this tsunami of, of emails on a daily basis, but a lot of video calls. And I've been reflecting on whether the uh, the prevalence of Zoom calls and video calls might be an indication that in the spirit of Susan Cain's quiet, the extroverts took over the world of work. And to some extent, the hyperactive hive mind even extending into email, but it's less obviously extrovert, but it's part of the same, right? It's part of this notion that the people who want to reactively and instinctively communicate work has been engineered towards them rather than people who want to hunker down and reflect and, you know, maybe slightly more introverted mentality. Do you want to talk through the hyperactive hive mind? Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I mean, so for extroverts, it's nice. But it also, in addition to giving you a way to communicate a lot more, it also gives people a way to obfuscate. So I don't really want to work. <laughs> so what I can do is mm. just be really performatively active on email and give off this ephemera of busyness that you know kind of counts, right? Because no one really knows who's working on what. It's just all this scrum that's going back and forth. Uh, but the, the real issue with the hive mind is that once we figured out that it's possible to collaborate and coordinate just using unscheduled back and forth messaging, the real harm is it, it it pushed out other ways that we could organize this work. It pushed out more structured processes. It pushed out ways that we might say, this is our process for producing articles. This is our process for trying to come up with new ad copy. All of that type of thinking got pushed out because this behemoth, which is just let's rock and roll in an inbox, let's rock and roll on Slack, was so flexible and slow, so convenient and so easy in the moment that it sucked all the oxygen out of the room. And so we don't have any more, like we might have in earlier days of knowledge work, processes that have been thought through for like, hey, what's the best way to take these human brains and have them work together to try to accomplish these things? All of that thinking got pushed out. It's just, no, just, just go back and forth. Uh, let's just rock and roll. Let's just send messages back and forth. And so we don't have any of the type of incremental innovations and in how we coordinate that is actually crucial in any sector in a, historical, in a historical context for increasing their productivity, increasing their economic activity, for growing the amount of, of revenue that they actually generate. We don't have that activity happening nearly as much right now in knowledge work because the hive mind has kept all of those alternatives pushed to the periphery. It's really interesting because it what it forces you to do, it forces you to reflect and maybe pick an example career or it, it may it forces you to reflect on what the stages of production are that go into that. Because obviously when it comes to manual labor, we can see that this part is created. You know, we, we might imagine something as, as glamorous as the Tesla production line but we we know that certain products are created and then there's a moment of com combination that those products are brought together and because it's so visible and tangible it seems self-evident when most of us look at our own jobs 
the stages seem rather more opaque. We don't quite know what the steps are in that. We don't know. We know that, you know, this, if we're in a marketing job or a sales job, these, these almost a built-in redundancy that a lot of the things we do don't work. So we don't know precisely. We, we can't be precise about, you know, we might have 50 marketing ideas and only one of them happens. So, so unless you can actually say we're going to produce 50 ideas, it, it proves very difficult. Do you want to take us through maybe an example there, a worked example of what you're thinking about then when you're talking about how we think about these stages and how we've become blind blinded to them at the moment yeah because knowledge work you're absolutely right uh knowledge work does not tend to break down our efforts into discrete processes which we can then optimize uh, and that's why i call what we do now the hyperactive high mind because it is like a high mind it's like yeah it's just all this stuff is happening we're all just kind of connected through these constants digital neurons and everything is just kind of a big jumbled together mess we just kind of are in our inbox all day in the industrial sector as you pointed out it's completely different Here's our processes. Let's re-engineer our processes. Hey, this person has a better way to do this process. Let's definitely try that. That's where all the productivity growth happened over the last 100 years in the industrial sector. Uh, we don't think that way in knowledge work, right? So we just think about, well, we just kind of rock and roll. We try to we try to answer things as they show up. But if we if we actually step back and contemplate, we'll see that all these jobs really do have implicit processes underneath the covers. So you work for a company. Underneath the covers, you might have, well, there's a respond to client questions process. It's something that comes up again and again, where I have to collaborate with other people to respond to incoming questions. There's a produce white papers, uh, marketing white paper process, because one of the things I do in my job is that we need to produce these white papers. I don't name it, but that process is really there, right? there. There's the, you know, uh, review the quarterly numbers and make strategy plans process. You know, these type of things underlie all of our efforts. So the question is, why don't we name them and try to optimize them? Why do we instead just say, let's just plug into an inbox and figure things out informally? Well, the hyperactive hive mind is not only just really easy and really convenient in the moment and cheap, I should add, because you don't have to build bespoke systems or hire extra managers. It's everyone knows how to use email. But as I report in the book, knowledge work unique from industri- the industrial sector has this real insistence on autonomy. That If you're a manager, it's not your job to tell people how to organize their work. That's up to the individuals. In knowledge work, we do objectives clear objectives, we do motivation and incentives, and then we leave it to the individual to figure out how to be productive. And when we leave it to the individual, we have a very hard time leaving this lowest common denominator solution once it arrived, which is just hive mind connection, simple, flexible, everyone knows how to use it. We're stuck in this lowest common denominator because we have a philosophy and knowledge work that says management by objectives is king, don't tell people how to work. So we're not telling people how to work and we're all stuck in the worst possible configuration of how to do it. One pushback might be that if it was easy to measure what knowledge workers did, then we'd all be doing it. And the imprecision of knowledge workers has been a frustration for managers you know, since time began. And in fact, probably one of the reasons why a lot of managers have felt frustrated by the last 12 months is that because they had no way of measuring how effectively people were working for them, they used to measure it with this proxy, which was how busy they looked. 
how earnest they looked, how busy they looked. And they used that as a proxy of who who was doing a good job and a bad job. I remember chatting to someone uh, about three or four months into a UK lockdown. And he said, I feel incapable of doing mid-year reviews because I have no evidence of how people have been working. And, and I guess, you know, that's just a reflection of how imperfect it was that people were doing mid-year reviews by just guessing based on the appearance of people. And, and I guess so, so the, the point here is if it was easy to measure uh, knowledge workers' output, it would everyone would be doing it. Or the flip side might be that actually what we could find out is if we are reductive like this and we, we set uh, very linear measurable goals, we might lose 50% of what people do because it's, it's um, so occupied with filling the gaps, with making things work in this sort of chaotic imprecision that we operate in. Oh, yeah. Well, no, no. It, it, I think it's really important because I, I think this phenomenon uh, in, in my book, Deep Work, I called it the metric black hole. And I do think it's important. But a, a place that my thinking has evolved some is that I don't think it's as much of the entire story as I once did. So back in 2016, in that book, Deep Work, I say this is one of the primary issues is we don't really know how to measure knowledge work like we can the rate at which widgets come off an assembly line. And if we can't measure it, it's all we're just going to fall into the lowest common denominator. My work since then, though, I think has really taught me the degree to which this autonomy mindset also is a big role because there are a lot of knowledge work positions in which there is some really clear measurable output that everyone agrees this is what's important. And still, it's a mess. I mean, look at academia. It's like very clear. You know, it's like research publications produced and satisfaction of the kids in your courses. Like everyone agrees this is what we want you know, out of our out of our university professors. And it is just an entire mess of of endless, you know, hyperactive hive mind, complete nonsense where people are working at four in the morning to get anything done, right? So even when it's incredibly clear, and there's like a single number, I can be defined by a single number, my H index, which tells me like exactly how productive I'm being. So we can get it down to a single number. We could plot this, you know, week by week um, because I think the autonomy factor is playing with that. So I think in a lot of cases we we could have a better sense if we're making more money, we're making less money, we're producing more uh, code or less code, we're, we have more clients than we did before. Things might be more measurable than I once thought. But this mindset of like, that's up to the individual. And now the the background on that, I mean, that, that comes mainly from Peter Drucker. I mean, Peter Drucker, when he he coined the term knowledge work in the 1950s, was one of the big influential thinkers on the birth of knowledge work as a sector. He is the guy who pushed this narrative of autonomy. And he was 80% right because what, what he correctly noted is how we actually execute our work needs to be autonomous. You can't tell a professor how to solve a proof or a computer programmer how to write an algorithm. But what I think he missed was all the stuff that surrounds the execution of the work, like how we identify tasks, how we assign tasks, how we make sure that people get the information they need to actually do the work, all of these workflows and processes that surround the actual execution that we can't leave to the individuals because you're not going to get the optimal configuration with just people trying to optimize themselves. You need to have organizational thinking of what is the best way as a team or as a company to run this process or run that process. And I think that's what he got wrong. And that's why we're stuck in the trap is that the need to make the actual execution autonomous led us to keep everything that surrounds the execution also autonomous. There, there is like a moment of concern. Last week I was reviewing um, just some of the stuff written about Amazon workshop workers. And, and you know, it's a very 
it, they're, they're packing workshops and uh, it's a very metrics driven organization. And, you know, as a consequence, you hear these things where workers are given 60 seconds to get to the next item and load them up. And I can definitely see why um, each of those stages has been reached where it's been like, come on, we just want people to work productively. But in aggregate, it produces a really empty and disagreeable version of work, of, of working life. Um, and it feels it feels sad, sad actually, on reflection. And th- there is a worry that if we set about trying to reduce knowledge work to that, is it going to take, I think someone even said it to you, didn't you, as you, as you were putting the book together, someone even said, aren't you going to take all the fun out of work? What's your reflection on that? Well, this is what Peter Drucker was correctly saying is there's this primary difference between knowledge work and industrial work, which is that the execution is autonomous because it's creative and skilled. We can't tell the knowledge worker how to actually do the primary things they do. That's not the case in knowledge work. The actual execution of the productive labor in knowledge work was long ago de-skilled, where we actually outsourced all the thinking about the best way to build the iron slag or to attach the steering wheel to the car. We outsourced that to a small group of managers. They figured out optimal execution, and then the workers were slotted into a a reductive role of just executing a predetermined plan. So this is what Drucker was actually responding to and why he was emphasizing autonomy so much and why he had such high hopes for the knowledge sector to be a really good development is because you can't break knowledge work down into step-by-step. You can't build an assembly line that produces computer codes the same way that it produces Model Ts. Now, my nuance is, yes, now if if you then, though, put more structure on the workflows that surrounds this autonomous, creative, satisfying work, we end up better. Because what we've done instead is we've invented a sort of knowledge work torture chamber where we say, okay, here's this like creative, autonomous work we want you to do. But the way we're going to organize this work is going to make it impossible to actually execute. So here's this, you get to write and you get to produce these things and and write code and add copy. And it's all really creative, um, but you have to check an inbox once every six minutes. And by doing so, you're going to completely exhaust your brain and make it difficult to actually concentrate. And you're barely going to be able to get anything done. You're going to have to do it at night after your kids go to bed. It's like we've, we've created a, a torture chamber of sorts for the knowledge worker. So my optimism is the same as Drucker's optimism, where when you keep the actual work efforts themselves creative and skilled and autonomous, it's very satisfying, and very meaningful. You know, there is no Highland Park equivalent. You know, Amazon's, their workers uh, in their fancy corporate headquarters have a very different experience than the workers who are in the warehouses, in part because if you're a computer programmer, what you're doing in that fancy corporate headquarters can't be reduced down to something that can be tailoristly uh, optimized. So I think by taking the workflows that mm. surrounds the satisfying creative autonomous work and structuring those, we make work better for knowledge workers. We get rid of the torture chamber of do this work in an environment where it's impossible to do this work. We free up more time for actually doing the stuff that's satisfying and less time for the frustrating, distracting uh, informal, ineffective way of organization that the hive mind gives to us. And so, you know, when I look to the assembly line as a analogy, my analogy is actually a very high level one, which is sometimes the best way to produce something is more complicated than the easiest way to do things. But the specifics about how you do industrial labor, I think, has huge differences with knowledge labor. It's so fascinating, even just you saying that there. I remember working with someone who was um, an incredibly creative person, and it, just this person who could conjure up ideas. And every time we got him in front of, I used to work at a magazine company, and every time we got him in front of uh, people he was trying to inspire, he was this brilliant, lyrical, 
just just the performer. And yet, I, I was just always struck by the fact that majority of his job was that he was replying to people, filling in spreadsheets. Um, he hated putting in those meetings. It was almost like if you had someone to book him in, it's almost like you're asking a pop star on their on their promotional junket to, that Rihanna has to phone all of the uh, TV outlets before she turned up. This guy was just wonderful at one thing. And yet we gave him all these things that didn't make him more creative, didn't make him more high performing. They just encumbered him with with admin. So it seems similar to that, actually. You're saying remove these people and they can actually do the, the job that requires their autonomy with, with far more um, full-blooded conviction, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the recipe for human satisfaction in a professional context. Doing less things, doing those things better. Like we want to do one thing at a time, not too many things and do those things really well. Preferably something that we've built up a skill and we can see these intentions made manifest concretely in the world after the application of that skill and struggle against complexities that we overcome and and, and in the end triumph with the thing that we are trying to produce and we're proud of it. That's what humans want to do. That is, if we have a work instinct, that's what that work instinct is. So there's, there's two ways you can thwart it. There's the, there's the uh, industrial way of thwarting it, which says, get rid of all the skill. We're going to give you 19 steps you have to do as fast as possible, like the poor Amazon workers in the warehouse. Or, and I think this can be equivalently as bad, we say we are going to give you that job, but we're going to completely drown you in a thousand other things and communication and back and forth emails and memos so that it's like you can't actually really do it. I think they're both, they both are uh, equally misery-making. So let's get into the the meat of it. So you're saying... The, someone's listening to you here and saying, yeah, my work is dysfunctional and we do need to go to a world without email. But what would replace it? So, you know, if someone was to to stride into the Zoom call tomorrow with their boss and say, look, you know, I want to try something different. Surely we need to swap out email clients or, or Slack. I'm sure you you associate Slack with with email here swap that out, what would you replace it with? Yeah, so this is the this is where it's important that we've defined this hyperactive hive mind workflow because the, the more accurate title of the book is a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow. That's the thing that's killing us is that this workflow that was enabled by email where everything is just worked out informally on the fly with back and forth messaging, be it in an email client, be it in Slack, I don't really care about the tool, that's been a cognitive disaster and it's making us miserable. So when I say we've got to go for a world without email, I don't care about tools. I mean, look, I don't want to use a fax machine. I'll definitely use email if I need to send a contract or whatever. I don't care about tools. I care about workflow. And I say what we need to replace it with is we have to get rid of this underlying workflow of just figure things out with back and forth messaging. Identify instead the specific processes that actually make up what you do, what your team does, what your company does. And for each, say, how do we actually want to implement this? And the metric I suggest, so if you're building an assembly line, your metric is how fast can we produce the car? In knowledge work, given the way our brain operates, the metric I would suggest optimizing is how do we minimize the number of back and forth messages required to execute this process? And you go process by process and you put in place things that are maybe a little more complicated, a little bit less convenient, that take some experimentation, but approaches that minimize the need for unscheduled back and forth messaging. That's the world I think we need to get to. You'll still have an email inbox. Like, great. I mean, you need to send me uh, my W-2 form. My, my, this is a, it's an American reference. <laughs> you, know, you need to send me some tax forms or broadcast an announcement about the parking lot or my accountant needs to send me an invoice. Great. It's better than physical mail. I'll, I'm glad I have an email inbox. But it's not the default place where 
most of the collaboration that makes up my work happen. That now happens in these processes that we have optimized and say, what's the best way to do this? What's the best way to do that? So that's the world I'm looking for. It's one where our inbox plays a much smaller role in how we actually work together to get things done. But these processes, where do they take place then? Are they, are they taking place face-to-face? Are they taking place on, on God forbid, Zoom calls? Are they, do they exist in technology? I'm just try, trying to really visualize. Someone mm-hmm. is here thinking, I agree, you know, what came out of our company pulse last quarter was that people said they've got too much digital communication. Um, someone's listening, thinking, I want to take action to move us beyond that. I want to reduce the burden of the, the hyperactive hive mind. Do they just encourage people to send fewer emails, but more detailed? What would be the solution you're proposing to them? Right. Yeah, so you have to look at the specific processes. And for each, you have to say, what's the best way to do this? Now, there's a, a wide variety. You know, I, I do many examples in the book, but there's a, there's a wide variety of what these might look like. Some very simple, some more complex. So it might mean, for example, in one of the companies I talk about, they have these various one-off projects they work on, right? So it's not like they can have a consistent process for each of these, because it'll be something they've never done before. Like we're going to start a new coaching program or something like that, but they don't want to just rock and roll in Slack. They don't want to just do that in email. So they used a tool like Flow, which allows them to take each project, divide the work that's being done into these virtual cards that's on a virtual board. Cards can be assigned to individual people. You see their picture in the corner of the cards, you know, who's working on what notes, files, and related information are, are attached to these cards. The columns in the flow table capture the status. Then they have regularly scheduled, highly structured status meetings where it's, okay, what's going on? Who's working on what? What do you need to make progress? Let's update the board, go. They are now able to collaborate on this project, make decisions, know who's working on what, get everyone the information they need with basically no emails being sent. Now, sometimes these processes are much more minor. Like at uh, Basecamp, Jason Fried's company based here out of Chicago, they have a lot of subject matter experts. They're a, a technology development company. They have a bunch of subject matter experts. Like this is the Ruby on Rails guys, this is the Ajax guys, whatever. And they found that, okay, implicitly there was a process where people would ask questions because, hey, you know about this. I'm working on a project over here. Can you help me with this, right? This was creating a lot of uh, unscheduled back and forth messaging. It was a problem. So what did they do there? They put in place a simple process of office hours. All right, there are set office hours when each expert is available to answer questions. They're well publicized within the company. When you have a question, it's up to you to wait until the next office hours and then you jump by. Now, this is a mainly virtual company. So the office hours are implemented with something like Zoom. I don't know exactly what technology they use. Um, But that is a process that, again, solves the problem. We have experts. People need to ask them questions to make progress. How do we minimize unscheduled back and forth messaging? So there's a wide variety of what these processes look like. Uh, They can be very high tech, they can be very technological, but the tool is not what makes them good. It is how much back and forth messaging is required to actually execute it. Yeah, it seems really interesting as well, because quite often um, what you're describing is a world where actually we're just far clearer on everyone's contribution to a team. Everyone knows precisely what our expectation is. And um, and I guess, you know, one of the pitfalls that we often have is teams are really unnecessarily large. There's too many, as a result of that, there's too many communication links that need to be maintained. Unnecessary communication links. People find themselves on meetings with colleagues they've never met 
or they, they don't know who they are. Um, but there's a sort of a burden to say apprised of other people's business. And actually what you're saying is probably what's at the heart of the productivity gap we've got at the moment, that productivity doesn't really seem to be going up for knowledge workers, that actually we just need to be far far more grown up, far more mature about thinking precisely what the inputs and what the outputs are of the way we're working. Yeah. And then once you do that, uh, first of all, you're probably going to have people doing less because once you're being really clear, here's what the things are and how they work, you might realize, huh, we're paying a lot for this, you know, uh, superstar developer. Maybe they shouldn't also have to sit in on these meetings. They shouldn't have to be a part of this. We probably are going to end up, you know, doing less. There's probably going to be something more like formalized support. Uh, and all of this, I think, is positive. Now, the negative is, and it's, it's a it's a nuanced but interesting point, is that the obfuscation allowed by the hyperactive hive mind uh, allows people, for example, to to uh, subjectively and informally change their workload, right? Like, well, I can just, by being more busy on here, I can actually maybe get away with doing less work. And sometimes it's for very legitimate reasons. You know, I have like a relative at home, a parent who's sick that I have to take care of. And and we don't, especially in the US, like there's no policy for that. So I'm just going to informally greatly reduce my hours, but I can kind of obfuscate this by being quick to respond. And no one really knows who's working on what, and I'll just respond to messages, and there's that performative element to it. Uh, all that goes away, which is good and bad, when you get the really clear processes. And it's, you know, we're trading accessibility for accountability. This is what everyone's working on. Here's how it's going. It's very hard in that circumstance to get away with uh, low performance or doing less. It has pluses and minuses. Though what I tend, the, the, what I tend to fall down on is that dealing with these um, abilities to informally titrate your workflow through the haziness of the hyperactive hive mind workflow, um, it's, it's too inequitable because it's very informal and uncontrolled. It's probably better to be in a world where we just have to confront clearly like who is able to do what and how they're doing. And when there's issues that arise that we actually face it transparently and say, okay, wait, you know, you do have a circumstance. This pandemic means your kids are at home. And instead of doing what we do around here and just like pretend like that's not a problem and then just sort of fake it with email, we'd actually have to confront it and say, what are we going to do about it? We have to actually make accommodations. Probably that's better. But I, I don't want to uh, underestimate the complication of what happens when actually it's really clear what everyone is doing and how it's going. More with my discussion with Cal Newport after this. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Now back to my discussion with the author of A World Without Email, Cal Newport. I know we've talked about it a couple of times, but this, I guess, you know, and you've explicitly said it's not just email, it's Slack as well. But this really, this hyperactive hive, hive mind very much is the Zoom calls that a lot of people are finding themselves on, isn't it? It's it's very much this, this need to lean into communication rather than thought, actually. You know, it's, it's sort of simplistically, it's, a, a lot of people find, I, I've witnessed a lot of organizations that feel that when something needs to be done, their instinct is to say, well, let's have a meeting. And that is effectively, they're saying, let's plug into the hyperactive hive mind, aren't they? Yeah. Because it's kind of easier to do that. It's easier to do your work speaking out loud than it is to sit with a blank sheet of paper in front of you and start thinking explicitly about the things that I want to happen and the dependencies based on that. It's just easier to sit on a call and it seems so. So you're taking aim, even though it's the title says "World Without Email." You're taking aim at all of this effectively. Yeah, the, the Zoom calls that have proliferated recently are absolutely uh, an example of the hyperactive hive mind. I mean, part of the the issue is when you say productivity is just personal; it's up to you. Is that most people are really bad at productivity. And so then what do all these Zoom calls become? I call it, uh, uh, it's, it's productivity by proxy. The idea is like, I'm not very organized. I don't really trust myself to, to think through what needs to be done, make a plan and execute it. But the one thing I do do is if there's a meeting on my calendar, I attend, right? That's the one thing that I, I know I'll consistently do. So how am I going to deal with this new thing to fell on my plate? I'll get a meeting on the calendar. And now I'm, I can release that stress from my brain. It's like, it's on my calendar. I look mm. at my calendar every day. I go to meetings. Now I don't have to keep track of it or worry about it. And when we get to the meeting, we can just hive mind about it. We'll just kind of rock and roll and try to make some progress on it. Uh, of course, that doesn't scale at all. And if you're in a world that rejects the hive mind and you're, you're thinking through as a team or a company, what are our processes for each of these things? You don't need all those Zoom meetings. Because you've actually thought it through and here's what happens when you're done with this document, you upload it to Dropbox by close of business on Monday, then the editor is going to look at it. It gets posted for your review Tuesday afternoon. There's an office, pre-scheduled office hours for discussing any issues. It goes to the product, you know, whatever, you know, you, you figured this stuff out. Uh, so I agree. And this is one of the reasons why I think the pandemic is making these pain points more amplified because we send more emails, we're on Slack more, and we do more of these meetings. It just took the hive mind and made it more hyperactive which I'm hoping is making people hungry for an alternative. Yeah, there's, there's definitely um, a problem, isn't there, that when we unplug from the hive mind, because effectively we create this feeling that work is never completed, that uh, that, that anxiety that I've missed something. So you, you're so effectively sweeping through your inbox, even going through your red emails, um, just to check that there hasn't been something that you've missed. And, and it just creates that, fear that sort of general state of of anxiety that you're somehow somewhere letting someone down um yeah and it's just it doesn't combine with a sense of happiness or a sense of productive output that we're effectively always on edge it it makes us miserable 
uh, it because it completely clashes with the way our brains are wired. And it's not this is this piece is not malicious. It's just like an, an accidental but unfortunate side effect of the hyperactive hive mind is exactly what you were just saying there. Knowing that there's this constant piling up of messages, each of which represents to our brain an obligation or conversation with another person that's important to us, like someone in our, our professional tribe, knowing that that is piling up and you're not answering them causes us a lot of anxiety. Even if your frontal cortex says it's okay, we have norms, our norms at this company says that don't expect a response in the evening or don't respect a response within 48 hours, the deeper social networks in your brain don't know about those norms and don't care about them. They think of that piling up of email messages like there is a tribe member tapping you on the shoulder, you're ignoring them, next time there's a famine, they're not going to share their food and you're going to die. And so we get very anxious. So again, it's why uh, we can't solve this problem by just saying, oh, I'll just check my email less or I'll batch my email checking. No, the issue is not your inbox. Mm. It's the underlying workflow. As long as the underlying workflow is the hive mind, you either need to be plugged into that hive mind or be a really anxious and be causing a lot of trouble in your company. You can't solve the problem until you replace the underlying workflow. That's why I don't really care much about email hacks. I don't care about batching. I don't care about notifications. I don't care about email free Fridays. Uh, that's not going to solve the problem. That's all about finding a better Band-Aid for your, your, uh, you know, your injuries, that your, your lashes on your legs. You need to actually stop your legs from getting lashed in the first place. That's what's actually going to solve the problem. And you got to do that by replacing the workflows. How would you deal with company-wide communication? Because a lot of organizations just, um, they, they get to into this habit of, of thinking, well, we need to communicate this for compliance purposes. We need to tell everyone this. And so as a consequence, the, the bigger your company becomes, the more of these three or four page emails you get each week, which readers like the, the least appealing thing in the, the, the day's newspaper is just this long pile of, of legalese that you need to get through. How would you deal with that? Because that just seems to be a consequence of the fact that big companies become bureaucracies. Is there a solution to that though? Uh, we can do better there. And, and I'll, I'll start by saying that's not nearly as worrisome as, I mean, the thing that I really hate is back and forth. Back and forth in the mm -hmm. inbox is a, is a cognitive killer. That being said, I agree, it is also annoying to have this increasing pile of these missives. So, so like in a perfect world, one thing I would recommend is that, you know, your team or unit or team lead, there needs to be someone where this information is not coming to you as an individual. It's going to that team lead who's sort of going through it or, or an administrative aid that supports a whole group. They're gathering it all together. You could imagine like a weekly digital newspaper where there is an abstract index up front. Okay, uh, I've gone through and read, there's been 17 relevant announcements that came down from the company this week. You can link to the full text here. Here's a quick summary. These are just about this. This is this you do need to actually do something about. It's for your payroll. And once a week, you know, Friday morning, you get this digest, right? Um, that's the type of thing that once you respect people's time and attention, you would do. If you're instead just trying to say what is easiest, uh, you don't. And again, I think this is a, a big part of the reason why we ossify the hive mind is that we, we seem to be prioritizing convenience and easiness as a, as a tier one property for running an effective business, which actually those have very little to do with running an effective business. So we get 17 emails like that in a, from units within our large company because for each of those units, it makes their life easier if they can just send it as an email. 
but making the HR department and the parking office and the marketing department's life easier is not high up on what you want to optimize for the company to be successful. In fact, making their life much harder might make the company much, much more effective. So generally, I think looking at easiness and convenience as a useful metric gets us into trouble. Do tech firms hit you up saying, listen, we want to take your principles and turn this into a system. Do you get people saying, look, you know, we'd love to create, we'd love to visualize your creation here. Did you get approaches like that? There's huge interest, I think, in uh, the investor community. There's huge interest in Silicon Valley in more generally being a part of unlocking the productivity that the hyperactive hive mind is suppressing, right? So, This is something that's different now than it was, let's say, five years ago when I was publishing Deep Work. People are beginning to realize the economic scale of what we're talking about. Uh, Again, Peter Drucker's number were really clear. In in 1999, he said, between 1900 and now, the industrial sector grew by 50 times because of an obsessive focus on how do we do this better. And he said that generated all of the wealth on which the entire developed world was built in the 20th century. Looking at knowledge work, he said, right now in 1999, knowledge work is where industrial work was in 1900. We have just barely begun thinking about, hey, what's the right way to do this? We're still doing the very easiest, most convenient first idea that we had. 50 times growth for such a massive sector of the economy is uh, revenue and wealth and, uh, and, and at such a scale. And I think people are starting to realize this, that there is, I believe, a, a, a huge shift of interest just emerging in how do we unlock this? How do we build tools that are going to help people be fantastically more productive because they're not just all day long? The, the firms that you've seen that have, you give countless examples in the book of firms who've changed their process using Trello or using, uh, in one case, a communications tool, but it was just optimized for, for what they were doing. Um, have you seen that firms have unlocked greater productivity by making these changes in the wild? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think when people put these uh, into place as firms or teams, uh, they find themselves much more productive and much happier. Even individuals within bigger organizations who have no autonomy over how their organization functions by just doing this asymmetrically. What are the processes I'm involved in? What changes can I make that I control that's going to reduce the back and forth messaging involved for each of these processes? Even individuals doing that report, oh, I'm massively more happier and productive. So yeah, I think the the effect here is huge. I mean, here's a simple experiment. Do one process upgrade. Don't schedule meetings via email. Use a tool like Schedule Once or Calendly where you can just say, here's all my available times, pick the best one for you. Small thing, right? Small, but it's a little bit of hive mind chatter that you're removing. That simple change by itself generates uh, such a cognitive freedom because it gets rid of all these back and forth conversations you have to keep tending. It's, it's like a gateway drug, right? You do even just that one change, you're like, oh, I see. I see how much this has, re- this has lifted off of my mind. I see the potential here. So um, yes, I think it generates uh, great results, but it's very hard and inconvenient. So, so in this early stages, we see this mainly happening in small teams, small companies, and individuals. What I'm waiting for is the big companies to do the the pain, like Henry Ford figuring out the assembly line during the early 20th century, the pain of actually transitioning a big company away from the hive mind. That's harder because you have to get out of the autonomy trap. You have to get all the stakeholders involved. But I've been talking to CEOs who are 
completely on board with this. So I think that's coming soon. Yeah. For, for me, the extension of that is having worked in big companies, the, almost the company needs to atomize themselves as well as their processes. So, you know, this company doesn't need to do all of these things with dependencies between people who would never normally meet each other, but they're seeing updates from each other. They're going to conferences about each other's work, just completely break it down into tiny little autonomous units that like Legos can plug into each other. And I I think for me, having worked in a big company, that, that sense of uh, autonomy that you'd get from it's, it's sort of like Nucor Steel. It's like that idea of revol- boiling things down to units of autonomy seems to be one of the things that would follow from your thinking here for me. I think that's probably the, the right scale to do this at. I, my, my theory is roughly the team level is the unit within innovation on processes should happen because that way everyone involved is involved in the innovation. That makes it much more likely to stick. I think where we would get in trouble is if there's uh, an executive committee <laughs> saying we are now going to figure out all the processes and tell you about them. Mm. The the where the high level so you can set the culture from the top and that's important. Um, but also standardizing the communication channels between units is also very important. In particular, setting a culture of each of these units has a is a set amount of what I call attention capital, the sort of latent production of the human brains involved in that unit to take information and add value to it. This is very valuable to us. This is to us what the the our equipment is at Nucor, right? So this is our, our main capital resource. Mm. We want to have some standards about how this unit can go and take attention capital from that unit. Like you can't just come take some of our iron slag from this part of the plant because you want it over here. We really want to keep track of because taking the slag and making it into molten steel is what we do, right? We want to be very careful about it. And so that's where you get uh, from the the high level. You might be able instead of just getting the culture, you also might work at okay, how do the connections between these things work? You know, who can just take time and attention mm-hmm. from who? Can this unit just like grab people from here and throw them into a meetings? Or should we have, you know, whatever, unit leads that you have to go through? You can't directly communicate with the people in it. Do we need to have, I don't know, right? I don't know the answers, but I think there's like, there's, there's a, a ton of sort of Harvard Business Review case studies to be written in the future of people who are trying to figure out mm-hmm. the right way to fit these pieces together. But again, there's so much productivity on the line. I think it's inevitable. Now, when when I spoke to you two years ago, uh, the the idea for this book was a little uh, title that you were thinking of. As you're sitting here now, what's the uh, what's the title that you're looking at in your moleskin book? What's the title that you're looking at, thinking, ah, that's where I might go next? Well, it's a good question, and and I should I should admit I, there was some subfer, uh, subterfuge two years ago because I've been working on this book since 2016, uh, and I actually put it on hold, wrote digital minimalism, and came back to it because it was such a big story. I, and it seems so consequential just to report it correctly it took me five years. So I, I'd actually, my, my original interviews for this book happened pretty early in 2016. <laughs> if that gives you some, some sense for, for how long I've been working on it. Okay. In terms of what's next, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. Um, usually I'm working on something next by the time I'm publishing a book, but you know, with the pandemic, uh, some other things fell on my plate. I started a podcast because I wanted to have more of a direct connection with my readers. That took up a lot of time. I also really uh, increased the amount of writing I was doing for publications. So for like the New Yorker Mm. and uh, the New York Times and Wired, I've been writing articles because I felt like I wanted to just, there was things going on I could be helpful about and I wanted to get stuff out. And so I've scratched that intellectual itch this last year's with these more proximate things. That being said, there are a couple ideas that are 
percolating. So I'm probably uh, not far from pulling the trigger on one, but not quite uh, at the place where I'm ready to pin it down yet. Well, thank you. Um, as ever, you sort of, I think you're, for me, you're always the most um, thoughtful and provocative person. You're, you're asking the questions or you're, you're posing the, the, the challenges that a lot of people aren't necessarily even reflecting upon. You know, whether you're telling people to sever their connections with social media, to, to reappraise their, your relationship, or, you know, the, the notion of telling people that, shallow work might be easy, but doesn't produce anything. These are always sort of important provocations. And I think with this one, it's the provocation that for me, I've thought about most in my newsletter. I've returned to sort of these themes the most in the, in the last few, few weeks and months. And so it's what a thrill to hear you articulate what actually this looks like. Give, give the audience a vision of what a world without email and Zoom and Slack, what what a world without these things could look like. So I'm so grateful for your time again today. Well, no, I appreciate that. And, and that's what I see that I do is I, I just want to give people who are smarter than me these intellectual tools and framework that allows them to actually run out there and do real good because I'm not great at business. You want to want me to manage your company. Uh, so I'll try to do the the work farther down the pipeline that then smarter people than me can take and and, and hopefully actually do some good. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Cal. Thank you. Thank you, Cal. I'm so, so grateful for Cal's time. This is the third time he's taken time. You know, like small, relatively small podcasts. It's certainly, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's good for him to take time to, to promote uh, such a, a brilliant book. So very grateful for him. Um, uh, I'm not 100% sure how many episodes are coming up in the next few months. I'm sort of, uh, like all of us, I think, burning the candle uh, in the middle and both ends. So I really hope to have more podcasts in your feed. In the meantime, I'm just about going to maintain my newsletter over the next few months. So if you if you are interested in how work culture is evolving, definitely get yourself signed up to that. Hope you're all well. Look after your health. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.